You're listening to After Images, a podcast for cinephiles that takes a deep dive into moving images. Each episode features a special guest who is invited to explore a film of their choice. After Images is hosted by film writers Franck Bouleg and Marisa C. Hayes. Today's episode welcomes Miranda Corcoran for a discussion of the 1968 film Rosemary's Baby. Based on Ira Levin's novel of the same name, the film follows a pair of newlyweds, Rosemary and Guy, played by Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes. The young couple take up residence in a Manhattan apartment inside the Bramford. Rosemary suspects that the residence may be something more sinister than just nosy neighbors. When she becomes pregnant, her doubts are dismissed by Guy and her doctor, but she tenaciously attempts to uncover the inner workings of a satanic cult and save her child. Catholicism, the occult, women's agency, and the urban Gothic are just a few of the themes brewing within the halls of the Bramford and our current episode in discussion with Miranda Corcoran. Miranda Corcoran is a lecturer in 21st century literature at University College Cork. Her first monograph, Witchcraft and Adolescence in American Popular Culture, Teen Witches, was published in June 2022 by the University of Wales Press. Her second monograph, a short study of the 1996 film The Craft, will be published in summer 2023. She has also published articles on horror and science fiction in the Comics Greed, Eternum, the Journal of Contemporary Gothic Studies, the New Ray Bradbury Review, and Supernatural Studies. Miranda Corcoran, welcome to After Images podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, could you please tell us why you chose this film and what Rosemary's Baby mean to you? Oh, wow. Okay, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this movie because it's it's actually one of my favorite movies, though bizarrely enough for, for someone who kind of considers themselves a horror fan, I didn't encounter it at an early age when I was a when I was a teenager my main source for horror movies was my local video store and they were that was kind of mostly slashers and the occasional kind of you know 90s thriller they didn't have a lot of older movies and particularly not movies from the 60s it never seemed to have been broadcast on television or perhaps very rarely here in Ireland so I didn't see it until I was in my 20s Um, and the first time I saw it was a very sort of dodgy poor quality copy on YouTube um, again, some point, I think maybe my mid 20s, something like that. So I actually didn't see it as early as a lot of people. And when I first saw it, the thing that struck me wasn't the kind of eerie occultness of the film. And that's kind of what people always spoke about. People always talked about what a frightening film it was and how all of the satanic stuff made it really sort of eerie and creepy. And I'd heard things about it potentially being cursed as well, kind of like The Exorcist. It has those rumors associated with it. But the main thing that really struck me watching it in my mid-20s, living in Ireland uh, at a time when abortion was still illegal, was actually how feminist it was in relation to issues like reproductive rights, uh, women's access to medical care and knowledge and women's power to control their own bodies. So that's what really hit me. And like after I watched it, I was sort of immediately obsessed with that aspect of it. Uh, So I obviously seen it like multiple times between then and now. And a couple of years ago, I had the chance to teach an undergraduate seminar on witchcraft in American popular culture. 
So that course is one that starts with like 19th century American literature. So like Nathaniel Hawthorne goes through the 20th century. I do things like the Crucible. And one of the very last texts that I look at is Rosemary's Baby, though it's actually the novel rather than the film. Uh, the year that I started teaching the course, it was very much in the midst of the Me Too movement. And I thought, well, I don't want to spend most of the class talking about Roman Polanski. I mean, obviously, he's controversial and generally a terrible person. And I sort of didn't want that to take away from the themes that I wanted to discuss. And I love Ira Levin. I've been teaching his, his novel, The Stepford Wives, uh, in another class for years. So I decided we teach the novel since they're so close. Um, and I taught that for about three or four years. So um, it's it's a film that's been with me, that's been with me a lot. Um, and it's a film that I find just absolutely fascinating. I like in terms of its themes and in terms of its ideas and, you know, as a work of art, but just even sort of in a kind of superficial kind of poppy sense as well. Like I'm obsessed with the clothes. I quote the movie all the time. Anytime I go to a restaurant and there's chocolate mousse, I will always say, you know, chocolate mouse, uh, like mini. So it's it's a film that I just, I really adore on, on so many levels. Fantastic. And I'm thinking a lot about this genre of the urban Gothic. Would you say that it was really an important film for establishing that genre in 20th century film? We have all the trappings of the Gothic castle and the building that's known as the Bramford, which was actually the Dakota building um, they use for the exterior shots in the film. But it really captures that sense of the Gothic and also in an urban landscape with the idea that on one hand, there's this isolated building where strange things are happening within it. And at the same time, there's that risk of, of this kind of cursed or occult behavior spilling out into this large city that is New York. Oh, absolutely. I, that's actually one of the things I find so interesting about Rosemary's Baby, because it is very much a Gothic film in the sort of like almost in the classic sort of 18th century tradition of the Gothic, you know, going back to like, you know, the castle of Otranto and the work of Anne Radcliffe and stuff like that, where you have this, you know, we're at the center of everything. There's some terrifying, imposing structure, but it's usually isolated. It's in the middle of nowhere. Quite often the setting of like the typical early Gothic novel was in the past, in the medieval period. So all of these horrors could be, you know, explained away as products of the past. But one of the things I really like about Rosemary's Baby is that it has those gothic sensibilities, but it, loca it locates them like right in the middle of New York City, as you were saying, in an apartment building. It feels very much in some ways like a haunted house film. It has that sort of isolation that you get with a haunted house film, but it's in the middle of New York. And the thing that I think is kind of interesting is that for large kind of sections of the film, you forget that it's set in New York. You forget that it's set in this big city because the apartment itself almost becomes a character in the film. And you have, you know, these weird things like the connection between um, the Woodhouse apartment and the Castavets apartment. And you have, you know, these long winding corridors. And it, it feels almost like a, a Gothic castle, but located in New York. And I, I really like that sort of like modernizing of Gothic tropes in a very, in a very sort of self-conscious way as well. Um, so I think it, it is really important for that sort of shift, of, for, especially of like supernatural horror, which I think is often associated, particularly in American cinema, with sort of isolated or remote or foreign locations. You know, if you think kind of pre-World War II in particular, like universal horror, 
those films usually took place in some kind of imaginary version of Europe, you know, that never really existed somewhere that's kind of a mashup of like Germany and Transylvania and Switzerland and whatever else Americans felt was, you know, sufficiently European. Um, or you might get occasionally a haunted house film that was set somewhere in America, but like in a look in an isolated location, you know, out in the countryside, out in a forest or something. But Rosemary's Baby is right in the middle of the city, right in the middle of like modern day New York. And it has, you know, the cars and the fashion and, you know, the culture of modern New York. And I think it's it's interesting how the film in its appearance is so up to date and so cutting edge. But then it kind of deals, you know, in very typical Gothic fashion with this fear of something ancient and horrifying reaching out of the past, which I, I really like. I think it manages that so well, that kind of contrast between something old and evil and then this kind of very modern sensibility. Mm. What you say really reminds me of the wonderful opening shots where we have this aerial view of the Bramford so that we can really observe all of those Gothic details of the architecture. And at the same time, the opening credit titles we see this Barbie doll pink, this very kind of fluorescent pink. And it reminded me of this when you talked about the Bramford as a character in the film and all the inner workings inside this building. I'm wondering if we can make a comparison to Rosemary's body, this lack of agency, the movement in her body that we feel. And it seems to me the two are really connected with those opening titles over the building with that Barbie doll pink and her being presented as this kind of twiggy 1960s girl figure. Yeah, and good to, to a certain point, um, we argue that it's the Bramford that's uh, pregnant. That's really interesting. Absolutely, because I mean, in a way, it's almost not Rosemary's body because it's been taken from her. And so, and you know, what's gestating in there is something created by the inhabitants of the Bramford. So I can definitely see that there is this kind of eerie vitality to the Bramford itself. It almost seems in some ways as if there's something, as if it's kind of alive in and of itself. But I absolutely love those opening credits as well. I love the, the sort of the juxtaposition of, you know, the aerial shot of New York as this big, vibrant, modern city. And then you have that sort of lullaby in the background as well that seems so kind of gentle and so tender. And I, I would love to know more about the choice of font actually, because I, I do think it's it's so interesting in that it does come across as not just feminine, but I think you're right, almost kind of girlish. And Rosemary herself, the way she's portrayed by Mia Farrow, she does have this kind of more of a, a girlish quality than sort of an adult woman, which I think is interesting as well. And I, I think maybe that contributes to her feeling more vulnerable as a character as well, as someone who's kind of more easily preyed upon. And I guess it also kind of ties into some of those, those fairy tale elements as well. You know, you have that sort of classic conflict between, you know, the scary old witch and the little girl. So I think there's some of that in there as well that's really interesting. And, and I think there's something also creepy about the lullaby itself. I mean, it reminds me very much of uh, um, the music used in um, uh, Deep Red. Um, yes, yes, you're right. At the at the start with the little child. Yes, yes. yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I think that is something that's always effective in horror when you take a lullaby or a children's song or a toy or something that we typically associate with innocence and then, you know, put it in proximity to or juxtapose it against something horrific. And I think that always works so well. 
And, and one last thing about the, the, the Gothic element of the film and its relationship to 18th century literature. Um, I, I was struck by the way um, so many elements of the film are linked to conspiracy, to things happening in the background out of our reach. And to me, that is also very much something that you find in those 18th century novels, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of ties into, you know, that image you get in like the 18th century, even kind of early 19th century stuff where you have, um, you know, some kind of secretive cabal often like associated with the aristocracy or the Catholic Church uh, engaged in some kind of nefarious plot. And, it you know, Rosemary's Baby definitely has that, but um, it's sort of fascinating how it then connects that to a lot of the anxieties of the 1960s and the kind of cultural paranoia of that period. And, you know, obviously references Kennedy and the Kennedy assassination and sort of the, the political upheavals of the 1960s as well. So it's, it's again, that sort of like kind of cross temporal meeting of, of different kinds of anxiety that's so interesting. And coming to the, back to this time that the film is set within the, the present day 1960s, um, I'm thinking a lot about this cult-like behavior that we witness in the 60s with the Manson cult, of course. And we know that uh, Roman Polanski wanted Sharon Tate actually for the role of Rosemary and she was killed one year later following the release of the film. So on one hand, there's this very real, um, very current uh, thread of, of cults. And then at the same time, I'm thinking of how you know, less than two decades later in the 1980s, there's the satanic panic. I'm wondering how you feel about situating the film time-wise. Do you think that it kind of foretells the satanic panic that arrives in the 80s, perhaps built in part from this kind of um, cult reality that people were experiencing at the yeah. time? Absolutely. And I think there's this also this like proliferation of films about the occult in the late 60s and early 70s, because that's also obviously when you get the Exorcist and you get the Omen. So it's it's a period, you know, and obviously there are some smaller films as well that kind of feed into those anxieties, uh, Devil of Rain and things like that. But it, it does seem to be a sort of trend in the late 60s, early 70s for these occult stories, but often occult stories that, you know, don't situate witches or Satanism in the past, in, you know, the medieval era or whenever you know, a lot of earlier Gothic texts liked to situate these things. A lot of these things, a lot of these films situate the occult and Satanism in the present day, which I think is one of the reasons why they're so impactful. And I mean, in a way, things like Rosemary's Baby are drawing on kind of real changes um, in American culture at the time. I mean, the year before Ira Levin's novel came out, Anton LaVey founded the Church of Satan in San Francisco. And while there's been a lot of debate amongst scholars of Satanism as to when Satanism really sort of kicks off, a lot of people say that, you know, there are certain organizations around the end of the 18th century that kind of really represent the beginning of modern Satanism. But as a sort of coherent, organized entity with, you know, a cohesive philosophy and, you know, publications coming out of it, it's it's probably the Church of Satan in the 1960s. Um, but even though that's probably the most pronounced example at the same time, I mean, the 1960s is this period where a lot of young people in America are embracing the counterculture and they're moving away from traditional, you know, Judeo-Christian values and towards, you know, Eastern philosophies or new religious movements that they feel are perhaps more authentic. So there's a lot of anxiety going on 
in American culture about, you know, that shift away from more traditional values and towards kind of new religions, new organizations that, you know, for a lot of Americans probably appear quite similar or sorry, sinister. I mean, like the Church of Satan is, you know, essentially an atheistic group. They don't actually believe in the devil or anything, but they appeared very, very sinister um, and appeared very, very shocking at the time. So like Rosemary's Baby is working within a real context of cultural and spiritual and religious change. But then I think the huge success of that movie sort of sparks um, a, an interest in Hollywood in these kind of occult horror movies like The Exorcist, like The Omen. Um, and that sort of starts a trend that I think over the 70s sort of evolves into this trope of occult paranoia. And you get all of these films where people are discovering, you know, uh, satanic cults living in their neighborhood or being, you know, chased by satanic cults and some reason I'm thinking of um, that movie Race with the Devil with the, the couple in the Winnebago and they're being chased by uh, a cult of Satanists. And like that, that theme of like satanic organizations, satanic groups operating in America in the present day becomes a real trend in the 1970s. And I think that has some part to play in, you know, sparking the satanic panic of the 1980s. Obviously, like there's a whole host of stuff there. There's like some weird stuff going on in like um, therapeutic circles surrounding recovered memories. There's like Reaganism and the kind of, you know, the conservative backlash of the 80s and all of that. But like, I think the occult cinema of the 1970s probably did help solidify that idea in the popular imagination that, hey, maybe our neighbors, maybe our neighbors are Satanists. So it, it's kind of interesting. And I know like having read later interviews with Ira Levin, he was really horrified by that because he didn't believe in the devil. Um, and he he says like explicitly that he doesn't believe in the devil and that he you know felt really bad that he basically kicked off this, this fashion for satanic cinema. He really kind of just picked the devil as a plot point because he thought it would be interesting and he wasn't really expecting this, this thing to like mushroom. Um, so I kind of feel bad for him in like in retrospect, but I, I do think the the popularity of occult cinema did probably do do something um, towards solidifying that idea of, you know, everyday Satanism. Yeah. Couldn't we argue that um, um, this increase uh, in Satanic cinema and uh, the scare that surrounds it um, is a response to the uncertainties faced by the United States at the, that moment after with the, the Vietnam War, with uh, um, the, 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 man, the demonstrations and the youth culture, and that somehow um, America needed to find an enemy within to explain for all of this happening. I think that's that's really valid. And a lot of people have, you know, obviously it, it can be a, it can get a bit simplistic, but people have connected it to earlier sort of panics in the US, you know, the Red Scare, for example. And I think that is kind of a, a tendency that you notice in in US culture, and maybe in, in all cultures, really, that need when things are not going particularly well to look for someone uh, who's responsible. Though the one thing I, I find like really fascinating about Rosemary's Baby is that it makes the Satanists so likable, you know, like even though they're they're literally worshipping the devil and they want to bring about the birth of the Antichrist and they are framed as the antagonists within the film, particularly in relation to, you know, their treatment of Rosemary and the way that obviously her bodily autonomy is negated. And that's, you know, that's really unsettling. But at the same time, like if it wasn't for the whole worshipping the devil thing, I'd probably kind of like to have them as neighbours. They, they're kind of funny. 
Um, so I, I find that interesting. <laughs> if you like tennis roots. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Though maybe a little bit annoying because Minnie's one of those people who like barges in, you know, even when you don't want her to and won't leave. But they sort of come across as just like so so relatable and ordinary and everyday and kind of again kind of jovial which I guess kind of feeds back into that idea of like there being an enemy among us you know our enemy needn't necessarily be some you know some foreign adversary it could be this like really like gaudy old lady who lives next door like that's the last person you're going to expect so it's kind of interesting and kind of you know germinating that paranoia yeah yeah and we're so lucky that you are an amazing specialist of the representation of witches and, and witchcraft. And I'm wondering if we can ask you about this intersection of Satanism and witchcraft. I know that's come up in recent years, for example, during the early seasons, well, early seasons, there were only three, I believe. But during the first season, I know that um, when the chilling adventures of Sabrina aired, there were real life witchcraft practitioners who were very unhappy with the depiction of the of the the devil sculpture that you see in the the witch academy for example so i wonder if we can use that as a, a jumping off point to look at this intersection of, of satanism and witchcraft yeah i mean like witchcraft is actually one of those new religions that kind of comes into being around that sort of post-world war ii period um wicca which is kind of like like not to not to generalize but like wicca is kind of the main or the most mainstream manifestation of witchcraft in popular culture. And that comes into being in the early 1950s, largely through the work of, of Gerald Gardner and a few other people as well, but he's kind of like the core figure. Um, and it comes about because of, of the repeal of the Witchcraft and Vagrancy Act in Britain. So it's that kind of liberalization of law surrounding things like witchcraft. So it's interesting that we often think of like witchcraft as something very, very old, but actually as it exists today, things like Wicca are actually very, very new. Um, so Wicca kind of comes into being around the same time as, as Satanism. I mean, if you think of, uh, you know, the Church of Satan and kind of a lesser known organization like the Process Church of the Final Judgment, who are kind of a satanic organization as well, though they have roots and things like um, Scientology and stuff like that. Um, they're a little bit more complex to pin down. So all of these things kind of come into being around the same time, but certainly practitioners of Wicca try to, as much as possible, distance themselves from Satanism because for a long time, I think, I think Wicca has become sufficiently mainstream now that if you say Wicca, you know, to someone, they will, they will automatically know that what you're talking about is kind of a nature-based religion, a form of paganism. Whereas, you know, but for a long time, especially in the 80s and 90s, just following on from the satanic panic, if you said witchcraft at all, the assumption was that you were devil worshippers and spending your weekends like sacrificing animals and kidnapping children and doing all of that stuff. So I can definitely see why people who are involved with Wicca want to want to separate that out. Um, but in terms of in terms of something like Rosemary's Baby, I think the vision of witchcraft that um Levin and then later Polanski are drawing on is probably like an older idea of witchcraft. Um, like obviously there is the influence of new religious movements like um, the Church of Satan, even just, you know, the chanting of Hail Satan and all of that is very, um, is very Anton LaVey. It's very, their rituals are very theatrical and that was a big thing for the Church of Satan. They saw their rituals as a kind of 
psychological theater that you use to like divest yourself of whatever kind of psychological baggage and hang-ups you might have. And a lot of that seems to stem directly from um, the Church of Satan. But though they were quite new, um, and I believe it was late 1966 when, when Levin finished writing the novel, so it would have been like very, very up to date. But I think a lot of his ideas about um, witches as they're represented in uh, Rosemary's Baby kind of go back to like the early modern idea of witchcraft. So we have a tendency to sort of like associate witches and witchcraft persecution with the medieval period, but that doesn't actually kick off until the early modern period. And it basically coincides with the Renaissance, which a lot of people find very strange because we associate the Renaissance with like modernity and progression, but it's also like the high point of like witchcraft persecutions. And the idea of the witch that was dominated, that was dominant in the early modern period, or I guess the thing that made that idea of the witch new was that it drew together ideas derived from folklore. And also this idea of an evil person who worshiped the devil, who met with other evil people in order to worship the devil and engaged in activities that were sort of counter to ordinary human morality. And a major part of that was the kidnapping and eating of children. Um, and I think the main reason for that was really that, like within the context of the early modern period, if you're trying to think of like, what is the worst thing a person could do? Usually the idea was that, especially in Western Europe, witches were generally women. So what is the worst thing a woman can do? hurt a baby, hurt a child. So I think a lot of those ideas about witchcraft uh, in Rosemary's Baby sort of reflect that early modern idea of the witch as a devil worshiper, as someone who harms children. Um, I think a lot of the ideas are kind of come from that. Some of the ideas also seem to come from like early, like late 19th and early 20th century occultism. Like there's some parallels that they draw in the film between people like Aleister Crowley um, and those kind of early 20th century practitioners of um, various kinds of magic. Um, so I think, I think he kind of, he draws on a range of different sources and kind of brings them together in some interesting ways. And I think the way in which he modernizes some of those older ideas about witches is probably what makes Rosemary's Baby so iconic because it turns witches into these like really ordinary middle-aged, you know, people next door. And I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating about them, about the film. It's not, you know, it's not a fairy tale. It's not set in the past. Um, it's, it's very modern and very grounded in many ways. You know, it doesn't really use special effects or anything like that to convey the sense of magic. Like for the vast majority of the film, you could actually be led, be led to believe that it's all in her head, that she's just imagining it. And I think that's what's really interested, interesting about the film. It's so grounded. You know, even if you think of <clears throat> sort of more recent American films in the context of Rosemary's Baby, so things from the 40s and 50s, like I Married a Witch or Bell, Book and Candle, it still leans into the like magic is real. And, you know, you can see the witch, you know, doing spells and like turning on and off lights or turning people into cats or, you know, doing whatever. Whereas in Rosemary's Baby, it doesn't really show magic working in that way. You know, those witches can make somebody sick or they can, you know, compel someone to, you know, jump out a window or something like that. But we don't actually see them working visible magic. And for that reason, like there's that blurring of the line between like reality and fantasy. And I, again, I think that's one of the things that makes it so modern. So I think that, that was kind of like a long roundabout thing, but I think I got there in the end. 
Yeah. And this really reminds me um, when you spoke about the theatricality linked to these representations of ceremonies, etc. with the worship. It reminded me of what you were saying yesterday, Franck, about the senses and the sensorial quality in the, the film. Yeah, you just mentioned the fact that a lot happens um, that we don't actually see. Um, and it seems to me that the, the, the character of Rosemary is very interesting from this perspective. And, and because there are so many shots um, to talk about the filmmaking itself that are from a point of view uh, with people who are hidden, partly hidden by walls. You can only see someone in the distance and only see half of the person. Um, so the, the site is very often um, put into boxes. There are walls all around her. But on the other hand, the sound uh, conveys those elements and, and, and goes through those partitions. Um, at the same time, it's not just the sight and the sound. I think that we have a feeling that her whole body becomes uh, very, uh, her senses become very heightened. I mean, she talks about the smell of things. She talks about the taste that she sees, that she feels under the, the mouth, the chocolate mouth. Um, ah, yeah, and the tannis root, the smell of the tannis root, yeah. So I've got the feeling that the, if the sight is blocked, all the other senses are um, uh, enhanced somehow, and that there is a certain dichotomy there that is interesting. That's such an excellent point, actually, because you're right. I mean, the first time we get the sense that perhaps there's something going on with the neighbors is, you know, because she's lying in bed um, with Guy and they hear all these weird noises and like something that sounds like chanting and music through the walls. And that's the first time you really get a sense that there's something a little bit off. So you're right. It's interesting how like her vision or her ability to like definitively see anything weird going on is kind of obscured. But there are like other ways that maybe she senses, like you were saying with the chocolate mousse as well, that, you know, the weird chalky undertaste, which is also something I always say whenever I get, if I get chocolate mouse somewhere, I'm always like, it has a chalky undertaste. <laughs> um, and like, no, no one ever gets what I'm referencing. But, um, but yeah, I think that's, that's such a fascinating idea that like, she does kind of have access to this information in other ways, even if her vision isn't always completely clear. Yeah, and isn't that linked somehow to the fact that she's a prisoner? I mean, that uh, um, the only way she can have access to those elements that are coming from other places are linked to other senses, but not to the side that is always trapped. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does. And I mean, I think there is a real sense of kind of claustrophobia in the film and sort of throughout the film that I think is maintained very well, because even when, I mean, obviously you have it in the apartment, there is a, a real sense in the apartment of her being trapped there. But even when she gets out of the apartment, you know, the scene where she's in the phone booth, for example, and the fact that, um, and it's in the novel as well, there, there's that emphasis on like a heat wave and the fact that it's really, really hot. So it makes the city feel oppressive. And even though she's in this huge city where she could presumably go anywhere for help or find someone who might be able to help her, the fact that there's like this oppressive heat bearing down on her makes her, you know, makes her feel more vulnerable and more trapped. And, and also, I guess the idea of that heat also kind of ties into the diabolical and like hellfire and the fact that maybe she's, you know, constantly being observed by these people. But yeah, there is that real sense of kind of oppression of being trapped that I think is so interesting in the film. And so very tangible in many ways as well, even when you're watching it. And perhaps just to finish on the subject, the only time that she sees things that she's not supposed to see is because she has visions. Uh, oh, dreams. Yeah, her dreams, yeah. So it's not That's a side going outside, but it's a side going inside, isn't it? 
Yeah. And I mean, and again, because they're dreams as well, it's not, it's not direct. And I kind of feel like if someone was remaking that movie today, and I know there's a, a TV show remake that I haven't seen because I don't want to, um, I feel like it'll, it'll upset me, but, um, I feel like if someone was remaking that movie today, they would make like a very explicit dream sequence where she somehow has like psychic flashes of what exactly is going on. But I like the fact that the dreams remain vague, that she has these like very strange dreams that like really follow the logic of dreams as well. You know, the way dreams will move from like one scenario to another in a way that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, she dreams, she's talking to like the nuns in her school and then she's like on a yacht with the Kennedys. And like, it doesn't, like you can see it, there's a connection there, like in the sense that obviously Catholicism, uh, you know, Kennedy was the, like the first U.S. Catholic president. There, there is a there's a connection there, but like it's really vague. Um, and I, I really like how the ideas are there. And then obviously, you know, you have the, the infamous scene of her, you know, basically being sexually assaulted by the devil. But it's not clear. Um, and I really like that. I really like the fact that it's it, it's not explicit about what is happening you just kind of get glimpses of it mixed in with all of this other kind of weird dream imagery so it's you know it's vision but like it's not it's not comprehensible necessarily and it's interesting how all of that is linked to the presence of these different botanicals i mean we were talking about the sensorial qualities the use of different roots etc in their rituals and I always link that back to her name it seems to me there's almost a kind of botanic slash biblical referencing going on with the character names in terms of Rosemary um, but also this might be interesting I'm not sure if you're familiar with this that in French the name Guy um, Guy like her partner in the film means mistletoe which is a poisonous no. plant yeah that's a parasite is poisonous that's brilliant <laughs> so for me that was an immediate reference that that comes in to this mix that's very strange of sort of mixing of religious references and botanic plant-like references I wonder what you think about that or yeah, I, I wonder how I wonder if that was intentional on Ira Levin's part I mean the like the novel itself is so sort of embedded with different references that I, I wouldn't be surprised because then also like their last name is Woodhouse. So then you have wood as well. And, you know, the house, the fact that it's, you know, so much of the, the film is about like houses and apartments and properties. So he, it seems like he was very intentional with regard to the naming. So I, I assume that was from his point. But yeah, I, like I think the names are fascinating. And you obviously have Rosemary and you have, you know, the, the connection to Mary. And I think Levin has himself said in interviews that, you know, the idea of inverting the story of the Virgin Mary and the birth of Christ was like very intentional. That's kind of what he was working towards. So the fact that her name also signals Mary is really interesting. And the fact that, you know, a lot, you know, it, I think it's it's outlined a little bit more clearly in the novel, but there are a lot of references throughout to her Catholic upbringing as well and the way in which that sort of shaped her as a person. So it's, it's kind of fascinating how those things are sort of mingled together. Definitely. And I thought of that when you mentioned the the reference to Kennedy as well, who was, you know, the first Catholic president that the United States had, had ever had. So that was extremely meaningful to, you know, culturally and practicing Catholics in the United and States. The, and the novel, and I think, I think this is outlined, again, this is kind of maybe stressed a bit more in the novel as well, that there is a papal visitation happening at the same time. And that this is kind of a big deal. And it, it's, it's, I don't know, I think, 
there's something almost it feels kind of apocalyptic or biblical the fact that like the pope is in the same place that you know the, where the antichrist is being gestated like that that's really interesting as well it seems like some kind of odd biblical prophecy but one of the things i like about levin and i like about the film is the fact that like they don't try to turn it into like a big good versus evil like on the nose metaphor it's it's there but it's not it's not on the surface and i find that really really fascinating and because it's so kind of subtextual it just lends itself more to the kind of eeriness of what's going on because i think the other big thing that's happening in the newspaper is that there's like a like a garbage collector strike so the two things that are happening are like there's a papal visit and there's a garbage collector strike and there's a sense of like something big is happening like there's a sense of like upheaval and like you know social and political unrest but also like decay because of like the garbage piling up but then also like the pope is arriving so you know there's a connection with like religious authority so it just it seems like there's so much going on there that I think Levin doesn't quite tease it out which I like because it, as a result of that it kind of stays it remains as kind of subtext as background and it kind of adds to the eeriness of the whole thing without becoming sort of an unnecessary plot point it does and it's so subtle as you say I'm thinking of a line that they kept from the novel in the film where they first eat with the Kastovitz their neighbors and um they're speaking, they're sort of mocking Catholicism and the Pope's forthcoming visit. And Rosemary doesn't say anything, but they turn to her and say, oh, we're insulting Rosemary. You know, are you a Catholic dear? And it kind of speaks to those changes that you mentioned earlier, the shifting demographic of religious beliefs that are moving away from Judeo-Christian values and the kind of conflicts that might emerge around the dinner table. And it's, it's interesting as well, because like Rosemary is so young and then, you know, um, Minnie and Roman are, you know, so, you know, they're older. So you would, you would think that they would sort of embody tradition, yeah. but they don't, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones who are kind of laughing and kind of mocking uh, established religions. And they're the, you know, I, I find that really interesting as well. And I mean, there, there is probably an argument to be made that because Ro because Minnie and Roman are older and because the the satanic cult seems to be so you know so insidious it's everywhere there are members all over the world uh you know uh, rosemary's doctor is one of them they have people in high places there seems to be a sort of sense that they actually represent some kind of older oppressive establishment uh which i think is interesting or some kind of like embedded system of power some kind of authority which is really interesting as well because I know I was just arguing that like Satanism is kind of like bound up with, you know, um, the counterculture of the period. But there is also this kind of strange thing that like all of their members are older people, wealthy people. Like that's really, really interesting as well. The sense that actually these Satanists are, you know, representation are representations of some kind of embedded structure or system uh, that is trying to harm Rosemary, which is is really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think they are basically a counter-tradition. Uh, I mean, uh, after all, Satanists define themselves in relationship to uh, established religion, don't they? So uh, in a sense, they are just the other side of the same picture. Um, and if you think of the name of um, uh, the, their neighbor, it's Roman, 
once again, establishing that relationship between uh, the biblical references and what's taking place in the United States. They're like, a, they're like a more fun version of the Catholic Church, <laughs> you know, like the Catholic Church, if they brought you cake sometimes um, yes. and like had had like crazy naked ceremonies and stuff. But um, yeah, like, I, like I, do, I do think that's really interesting as well. And like one thing that I've I've argued in my class when I've been teaching it and I'm, I'm also co- uh, co-editing a, a collection about satanic feminism at the moment and a few people in that book argue the same thing uh, what what I've argued is that like essentially the satanic coven in Rosemary's Baby do seem to embody the powers of the establishment and the patriarchy particularly with regard to the way in which they seek to control Rosemary's body and basically divest her of any kind of agency or the ability to make any choices about her body. So it's interesting that in that sense as well, they embody authority. Um, so I think I think that's really, really fascinating. Um, and it actually, it's weird because it actually connects to, you, you were mentioning the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina earlier. One thing that's, <clears throat> that's kind of fascinating about that show is that like in that show, um, Satanism, and the worship of the devil is associated with the patriarchy and with the oppression of women. And it's interesting that Rosemary's Baby, you know, even though it was, you know, the book was written and the film was made at a time when all of these countercultural movements were coming into being, it, it also associates Satanism with the patriarchy, with the oppression of women. And I, I find that really, really fascinating because in more recent years, you know, you get a lot of texts that associate the devil with the with the liberation of women. Though actually, that's not even that recent because there's a whole like 19th century trend of, of satanic feminism. But if you think of things like, for example, uh, Robert Eggers' film The Witch, for example, you know, that the whole thing is that like she get you know she experiences liberation from her rigid Puritan family by embracing the devil and you know running off into the woods with the devil and like that's often a trend in kind of contemporary texts dealing with witchcraft and the devil whereas in in rosemary's baby witchcraft and satanism are clearly linked to the devil they don't have these feminist associations that we often sort of project onto them and i I find that really really fascinating as well that that, that somehow reminds me of um, i mean this vision of um um, the patriarchal vision of this elite society reminds me of the film Society by Ryan Usner. Uh, oh, yes, you're familiar yeah. with this. Yes, I have seen that. Yeah. Hmm. And I mean, and again, like there are some, I think there are some parallels just in terms of the fact that the, you know, the witches are essentially elite, like socially elite within the context of, you know, 90 of the 1960s. I mean, they are they are wealthy people. They live in this, you know, very desirable building in New York. The people that they have connections with are important people, kind of, you know, socially and politically and culturally. So, and, and you see that at the end, where all of these people come to visit and you know pay homage to the baby. Like there are a lot of important people who are coming to visit, and people are coming from all over the world. So yeah, you get the sense that they are kind of the upper the upper echelons of society. Um, which is is really interesting. Again, I guess it's that idea of like, you know, power seeking to kind of propagate itself in this case, you know, by using Rosemary's body to, to engender the Antichrist. And you've also mentioned the fact that Ira Levin was um, an atheist. 
And at the same time, I'm also wondering to what extent Rosemary's Baby might speak to a certain satirical vision of Judaism or the representation of Jews in the post-war period in the sense that many, played by the wonderful Ruth Gordon, just embodies the American Jewish grandmother, the New York Jewish grandmother. I think that's why I like her so much. She's hilarious. Yeah. And I mean, that is interesting as well, because I, I think Levin has touched on some of these things in interviews, because obviously, even though he was not religious himself, his background was a Jewish one. So, you know, he, he I think he has touched on some of that. And obviously, he's written things like The Boys from Brazil, that kind of more you know, emphatically engage with things like um, anti-Semitism. Um, and it's it's even, it actually even appears in um, in the Stepford Wives, there's a character whose name is, um, oh my God, Bobby Markow, but she jokes that the name, the surname Markow is upwardly mobile for Markowitz, and that they changed their name in order to assimilate into this very white, you know, uh, waspish community. So I think, I think there are elements of that within Rosemary's Baby. Um, I think it is something that Levin seems to have been interested in, in his work. Um, and in particular, I think he's he seems to be kind of interested in, in a lot of his work in those kind of like subtle expressions of, of anti-Semitism and in those subtle expressions of like the dominance of a very kind of waspy white uh, American culture as well. But yeah, I, I can never really figure out what he's doing in Rosemary's Baby with it, because obviously, like Dr. Saperstein, for example, is also represented as being um, as being Jewish as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm never entirely sure what he's doing with that. I do feel, you know, as you suggested, that there's kind of an element of, sat of satire going on there as well. This idea of, you know, unfortunately, it's it's difficult to avoid thinking of like various anti-Semitic conspiracy theories when you think of this idea of like, a secret society of people who are, you know, global in their reach. And I do think that, like, there's an element of satirizing that in, in Levin's work, mm. uh, particularly because so much of what he does is so satirical. And, like, even though the... And I, I think he does try to kind of, like, knock down or kind of, like, you know, dismantle the, some of those kind of conspiratorial ideas and some of those anti-Semitic conspiracies because even though the Satanists in Rosemary's Baby are obviously very powerful, they're also ridiculous. Yeah. You know, they're nosy neighbors and like gossipy people who live next door. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not elegant. They're not charismatic. They're kind of ridiculous and ordinary. And so I do think that like what he's attempting to do there is to kind of knock down or kind of you know, strip away some of the powers of those conspiracies. Additionally, like some of the, the stereotypes that would have been associated with witchcraft in the early modern period would also have been associated with Jewish people. Um, or one of the terms that they gave to the witches' Sabbath was also the synagogue. The term Sabbath obviously, you know, has connotations with Judaism as well. So there was a lot of overlap between beliefs in, you know, what witches did when they gathered at night and what Jewish people did when they gathered. So there was a lot of overlap there. And you do get the sense that like Levin is trying to kind of knock that down a bit and kind of be like, yes, you know, these witches are part of a big worldwide conspiracy, but they're sort of ridiculous people. Um, so we maybe it's had a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So like, maybe it's ridiculous to believe in this kind of global conspiracy. Or, or I mean, the, the, the other option is that you mentioned the fact that Rosemary might have been inventing all of this. Uh, and so these ideas about conspiracies linked to um, um, the, the Jewish conspiracies might be what's part of her, um, uh, of what she learned as being a, a, a good Christian girl. 
Yeah, exactly. Like growing up Catholic and, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there has historically been a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric in, in Catholicism. Um, so it kind of makes sense that she would have maybe internalized some of that. So if she is, if she has developed these sort of paranoid fantasies, it kind of makes sense that they would exist in this manner. It's just amazing, I think, for a novel that's pretty, one can read it, you know, in, in one sitting if you're. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. It's, it's definitely like an airport novel, which <laughs> I really like as well. It's, you know, you it's the kind of book that people obviously like read on the train to work in the 60s and stuff. Yeah. And it's so rich. I mean, it's incredible for such a quick read that's really enjoyable and entertaining. There are so many different ideas in this book. And I think it's, as you said, sometimes he just drops little ideas here and there, and he doesn't necessarily come back to them. He doesn't give any definitive answer. You know, the whole book is crawling with ambiguities. And at the same time, that's just so rich in terms of the food for thought that it provides. I think so. And I I think one of the reasons that the film works so well, um, and, you know, this is something kind of I, I feel with regard to like talking about it and teaching it and things as well. One of the reasons I think it works so well is because it draws so heavily on the novel. And I saw I saw someone on Twitter a while ago actually saying that they would they've never seen Rosemary's Baby and they'll never watch it because of the connection to Roman Polanski. And I think obviously, the, you know, the question of whether or not we should be supporting people like that and consuming art by people like that, like that is obviously a very, very fraught and very difficult question. And we could probably spend like 10 hours here talking about that. But one reason that I'm generally more amenable to watching Rosemary's Baby. I mean, it's one of my favorite films and, you know, talking about it, writing about it in an academic context and even teaching it occasionally is that I think that Polanski doesn't really do that much to the source text. I mean, yes, he renders it visually. I mean, he's the director, obviously, but I think, well, firstly, I think film is a, a collaborative medium. I'm not really into the whole auteur theory thing. And I think that like so much of what makes Rosemary's Baby good is, you know, the the set design and the costumes and the performances like especially I think Ruth Gordon in that movie is just like incredible um I think she's my favorite but like the performances from everyone it's amazing and it's it's very much a collaborative medium Uh, but the other reason I'm okay with teaching and talking about Rosemary's Baby and you know admitting that it's one of my all-time favorite films is that the whole thing hues so closely to Ira Levin's original novel from like from what I can see I think he cuts Polanski cut like one scene or one like important bit, which is where Rosemary goes off to, you know, the cabin or whatever to like think things through. Like he he gets rid of that bit so that the film is pretty much entirely set in New York and you have that kind of confined claustrophobia. But other than that, like the film is basically a straight lift from the novel. You know, the dialogue comes particularly pretty much directly from the novel, the way scenes and characters are described. It's so faithful to the novel that, I think that you can think of Rosemary's Baby, the film, as being more Ira Levin's film than Roman Polanski's. And I think because it's faithful to a novel written by an author from who, from what I can see, is very much a feminist in, you know, in his writing and in his attitudes towards women. Like you can really see it in The Stepford Wives as well, which is kind of the, the other iconic feminist work by by Ira Levin. So I think because the film stays so close to that and Ira Levin was clearly engaging with issues on, you know, in such a pro-feminist way, in such a pro-woman way, that I think it becomes possible to watch and enjoy the film even now, even like knowing, you know, 
that Roman Polanski is generally a terrible person because so much of what makes that film great comes from Ira Levin's novel. Yeah. But plus, I think there is a big difference between admitting that Polanski might be a good film director and might have shot a good, a few good uh, movies uh, in his time, and um, uh, giving him the, the red carpet at Cannes uh, with uh, journalists from all around the world. I think um, exactly. those yeah. are the different. So, and I mean, I, I I do like other films he's made. You know, I, I like Chinatown. I like The Tenant. I quite like the Fearless Vampire Killers, uh, which is a ridiculous film, but it's funny. Um, <laughs> and like and, and like Repulsion. So like he made he made good films, and he made films that are interesting and worthy of discussion. But exactly, that doesn't mean he needs to be celebrated mm-hmm. as a human being. And I guess the other thing, as I was saying as well, is that so many other people were involved in the creation of those films as well. That you know, I think it would be unfair to like jettison their art and their contribution because of you know a ter- you know the director being a terrible person because unfortunately film seems to be kind of with directors who are awful people so you know no i really appreciate your approach because i do think that it's an important film to study and as you said cinema is a collaborative art and that's often forgotten i think and it's important i think so too i think a lot of that has to do with kind of like that dominance of auteur theory as well where we're like the director is god and is responsible for everything but like obviously they're not and i think that obviously discredits a lot of the you know the work of other people involved but like i think so many brilliant people brought so much to Rosemary's Baby that I think it would be a shame to disregard it just because the director is terrible. Yeah, and, but I think it's good w- w- that we're doing what what you're doing, which is acknowledging mm-hmm. the fact that there is this problem that you know we don't approve of Roman Polanski's actions, and we're very unhappy about that. And at the same time, that we're not going to throw away this beautiful work that other yeah. people contributed to. To throw away the Rosemary's Baby, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Throw <laughs> Rosemary's Baby out with the bathwater, as it were. Um, I think you've mentioned that you've read the follow-up to Rosemary's Baby. Uh, Could you say something about it? Unfortunately, yes, I have. (laughs) You don't like it? I do not like it. I just, I hate the ending. I I don't know if it's okay. Is it okay to spoil things? Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's basically all a dream. I I just, (laughs) maybe, maybe. But yeah, it just, oh. I don't know. I mean, there there is that like it basically resets everything um, back to the early an earlier point in the novel before all of this, you know, satanic spawn of Satan thing has transpired. I mean, which is interesting because obviously you could argue that perhaps it's not. Um, but it, it does seem uh, as though perhaps that's that's where Eleven is going, which seems unfortunate because. It reminds me of when I was in primary school and they would get you to do like a little composition where you would write a short story. And then if you ran out of time before the end of the allotted time slot, you'd be like, and then I woke up and it was all a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt a little bit like that, which is unfortunate. Um, like I, I, one of the things, the other thing I didn't like about it though, even if, you know, you, you leave that bizarre, I guess, kind of twist aside is that Rosemary has basically been absent for um for the child's entire life and I don't think that's interesting the fact that you know they're then reunited essentially when he's an adult I didn't like that because I thought what really grabbed me about Rosemary's Baby and the ending of Rosemary's Baby both the novel and the film is that and it's it's more explicit in the novel obviously because we have access to to Rosemary's thought process because at the at the end of the novel like at the end of the film she you know decides to you know hold the baby and you know 
maybe in, potentially embrace her role as his mother. And in the novel, you have her, she thinks something along the lines of, um, of, you know, well, yeah, he's half, he's half the devil, he's half evil, but he's also half me. So maybe like my influence could, could shape him in some other way. And I thought like a really interesting sequel for Rosemary's Baby would surely be seeing Rosemary attempting to do that. And they do touch on it briefly in the novel. Like she's, she's there for a little bit in his life. Um, but for the most part, she's not. So she only reunites with him once he's grown up. But the thing that was interesting about the end of the novel and the end of the film was like, well, what does that decision mean for Rosemary? Like, what is what would it be like to have this child who has like the potential for great evil and you're trying to perhaps make him a better person or ameliorate that in some way? And a lot of my students, when they read the novel, because we talk about it a lot through a feminist lens and obviously we talk about, you know, the film in the context of, you know, oral contraception just being legalized in the U.S. around that time or being made available in the U.S. around that time. We talk about it in a sort of pro or sort of pre-Roe v. Wade context. But the other context that we talk about it in is Rosemary making the choice to be a mother and making that decision. And a lot of my students argue that like perhaps we could, they, they, they fight about this because some of them are like, oh yeah, her big decision is that she decides to be a mother. You know, it's, it's a very like putting herself into a very conventional role. But then other students will argue that like the very fact that she makes this choice and she has this like strong personality that she wants to influence her child with is, is a feminist action. So the students debate that a lot. But I think it would have been really interesting to see how that relationship developed as the child grew older, like, and also how her relationship with Minnie and Roman would have developed. Um, like, how would she have interacted with these people who basically would have been like the horror equivalent of like the overly invested grandparents who won't leave you alone to make your own decisions? You know, what would have happened between her and God? Like, it would have been really, really interesting to see that develop and to see like her struggling to, to maybe shape this child into a better person. Um, so I, I was really disappointed in the, in the sequel novel for that reason. There's a, there's also a made for TV movie sequel that I haven't seen, unfortunately, because I can't find it. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard terrible things about it. And the only good thing, you know, I know that the only good thing about it is that Ruth Gordon is in it. Um, but this is the terrible tragedy of it, right? That's one of the reasons that I wanted to watch it and I will watch anything, but I was honestly so bored. They've completely... <laughs> pared down her character she's no longer the spunky older woman who wears colorful strange patterns and and love her so much clothing. she's dressed very kind of I don't know what would be considered quite conventional at the time and she doesn't get a lot of screen time and it's just a very meandering plot the only thing I find interesting is that we were discussing earlier in the 70s um the kind of movement of satanic worship and cults and there is a bit of that 1970s road movie feel because it spreads across the geography of the states from the east coast to the west coast um so there's a bit of that kind of cultural uh, movement coming into the the film but um pacing wise script wise and even acting i'm sad to say it's um I don't recommend it. Uh, I didn't. Uh, it, it, it's disappointing because I, I would have loved a good sequel, like a good. And I mean, obviously, creating an immediate sequel to a horror movie hit wasn't really a thing in the 60s, you know. Um, but it would have been so interesting to see what happened and how that relationship developed. Like it's it's like one of the things I think that is so fascinating about the film is Rosemary making the choice to be like, 
okay, these people are Satanists. This is the, the child of the devil. But you know what? I'm going to be his mother and we'll see how things go. Like, that's so interesting that she makes that decision. And like, they, they try to kind of take the care of the baby away from her for a bit. You know, you have like Laura Louise, like rocking him incorrectly. And, yeah. you know, then, you know, she Rosemary comes over and she's like, you know, you're not doing it right. You're upsetting him. Like, I really like the way she kind of takes a stand to, you know, try to look after the child in her way. And I think that would have made a really, really good sequel. So I don't know if a really good filmmaker would like to make a proper Rosemary's Baby sequel where we actually get to see Rosemary, you know, kind of navigate this process. That would be great. But I, I don't think that would, will actually happen. Um, and I, I, I don't think it would probably go very well either. So hmm. on the other hand, um, um, when I think about the two reasons that you've mentioned concerning the reason why you don't like Son of Rosemary, the, the fact that it takes place uh, 27 later uh, after yes. she, she's been in a coma, and also uh, the fact that um, uh, it is all basically a dream, possibly. Uh, isn't that very similar to Twin Peaks The Return? Ah, good point, actually. But it's just Twin Peaks. The return is made much better, though. <laughs> and the the, wor the world of dreams is David Lynch's world. You know, he knows how to make that interesting. Whereas, like, what Levin does with this book is like a very conventional occult political thriller, and then it was a dream. You know, there's no there's no gesturing towards that. It's like he realized he had a deadline to meet, and he was like, "Oh shit, I still haven't finished this book, so I guess it's going to be a dream now." Um, which, you know, it, it's unfortunate because I, I find like I find Rosemary and the cast of Vets to be such interesting characters um, that I would like to have seen more from them. But um, it's, it's unfortunate that the one sequel we got was, you know, the official sequel is terrible and apparently the made for TV one is too. So interesting, the made interestingly, the made for TV sequel does similar things in the sense that Rosemary is separated from her child when he's very young. Um, so she doesn't grow up with him. Um, you don't really see Roman and many having an influence on the child because he's lived on the West Coast for most of his childhood. So he misses the contact with them back in New York. And then it's only when he comes of age that they want to have a ceremony to decide <clears throat> whether the devil will really inhabit his body or not. Like, will he be accepted as a vessel? Um, oh, so that actually sounds like the chilling adventures of Sabrina. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's a bit of a cop out, as you mentioned, with kind of the development of his life and all those relationships that that could have been addressed. Nonetheless, I mean, um, I'm not as uh, opposed to the um, sequel as Marissa. I don't think it's a good film, but I think it has interesting elements, um, especially once again in relationship with Twin Peaks, um, because uh, it ends with a, a scene in a motel. Uh, where uh, the Andy is being basically raped by a woman. Uh, and in order to generate a new Antichrist who's going to be a woman. And all this really resonates strongly with the return, in my, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> really interesting. I, haven't, I actually, yeah. That, well, obviously, I haven't seen the, the made-for-TV sequel, but that's a really interesting parallel, actually. Mm. Yeah, Frank loves to see everything through the lens of Twin Peaks, but sometimes I mean, it, it does make everything better. But no, I think I think that's really fascinating, and it, it's interesting to me as well that they both skip over that kind of vital part and that most interesting part as well. Mm. Um, I mean, one thing I do like about the the novel sequel is that he's going into politics because, of course, like where else would you go if you were the Antichrist? Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, and I think there are really interesting references in the book 
that made me wonder what would it be like as an author to revisit the story so many years later, knowing everything societally that had changed yeah. since the year. And also, I guess, being aware of everyone's expectations as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, being aware of like what people, you know, I guess of the cult status that the film had attained. Um, and, you know, being aware of how high everyone's expectations would be as a result. I think that would be, you know, I think that would probably be quite daunting. Yes. Mm -mm. And so that book takes place in the 90s. And speaking of the 90s, I just want our listeners to know about your upcoming publications. And I believe that there is a book forthcoming in the Devil's Advocate series on the craft, the original or the new one and the old one. Uh, just mostly the original, but I do um, address the sort of remake, reboot, semi-sequel new one as well. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's part of the Devil's Advocate series. So it's just like a very short overview of the film itself and its influences and, you know, key themes and impact. Um, it's a film that had, I think, like anyone who was a, a teenage girl in the 90s or, well, no, I was a kid in the 90s and a teenager in the 2000s anyone of that age, it had a huge impact on me as a human being. So um, I feel like obviously it's made for people who are interested in films and the Devil's Advocate is a series of books on horror. So it's for people who are interested in horror, but I feel like my core audience is going to be like 30, 40 something year old women who, you know, were obsessed with the movie when it first came out. I'm so excited to read it. It's a great series, but I'm particularly looking forward to your volume because I remember seeing this film when I was in high school and suddenly there were covens springing up. Left okay. I tried to start one. I tried to start one in my neighborhood. I was like 12. Um, and I think we just copied one of the, the spells from the, the movie. And then at the end, we just ate a bunch of chocolate. Um, <laughs> But it, yeah, I just, uh, everyone wanted to be a witch after that movie came out. I think it just had like, culturally, it had the biggest impact. So um, I'm hoping people will be interested in reading about it. And do you have any other projects you're currently working on? Uh, yeah, and so I'm currently working on an edited collection on about satanic feminism, uh, which is a concept that uh, was a term that was coined by Per Faxnell. He's a scholar of religious history. Um, to describe a phenomenon that emerged in the 19th century where Satan is kind of reimagined as a liberator of women in contrast to like the patriarchy of the Christian church. And I'm working on an edited collection of essays about how some of these ideas have like reappeared in the 20th and 21st century in popular culture. So looking at things like Rosemary's Baby actually has a chapter, um, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, um, some work by Shirley Jackson. Uh, there's a whole host of, of interesting things that people are talking about. So that's a lot of fun as well. We're really looking forward to that as well. And this reminds me of something that we didn't ask you, but that it would be really interesting to hear your opinion on as perhaps a final discussion point, which would be this kind of feminist wave of, of witches that we're seeing now and the kind of shift in the depiction of witches as something more positive in terms of um, a lot of women with more autonomy, free thinkers, et cetera. Could you maybe speak to that a little? Is it a misconception I have that the image of the witch is shifting? Has it something that's been a slow burn throughout time or? I, I think you're right in some ways because it's something that happens periodically. I think witches get rehabilitated periodically. Um, and I mean, obviously there have always been, you know, different kinds of, you know, stories about witches that represent them in different ways, you know. So even in oral traditions, you have witches who are completely evil 
and eat babies. But then sometimes you have witches that might help you out in some way or give you advice on your quest or do something like that. But it, it's one of those things that really takes off in the 19th century with people, um, usually progressive writers. Um, so people like Jules Michelet in France and um, uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage in the US, where people who are involved with witches, witchcraft practices are kind of reimagined as maybe progressives or rebels in society. Um, you start to see first wave feminists at the end of the 19th century writing about women who would have been accused as witchcraft of witchcraft as, you know, healers or wise women. That's kind of where a lot of those ideas come from as being, you know, victimized by the church because they were independent or free thinkers. So you start seeing that at the end of the 19th century and then it comes back again in the 1960s and then it comes back again. So that's what second wave feminism and then it comes back again in the 1990s with uh, third wave feminism. And then um, lastly, it, the current thing that we're, we're seeing is that it's coming back now with, um, with fourth wave feminism. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's kind of cyclical. I think each way, basically the way I like to think of it is that each wave of feminism gets its own witches. Yes. What's interesting to me is the fact that uh, you, we seem to have, when it comes to movies, uh, waves of films uh, like uh, in the early 2000s we had a lot of zombie movies for almost 10 years and it seems to me that recently it's mostly been uh, movies about witches and I was wondering why that could uh, be the case I and mean, I don't exactly understand uh, what uh, changed in the in the in the psyche of the international community to to make this I, I think I think a lot of it has to do with things like Me Too um, and sort of like the reemergence of feminist activism as like a visible force. Um, so I think a lot of that, it has to do with that. A lot of it has to do with like online communities like TikTok and stuff as well. Uh, there are a lot of like young girls who are getting into witchcraft online through social media, TikTok mostly, I think, um, and maybe Instagram as well. So I think it's a few shifts like that, but I think certainly like from the the 2010s onwards, I think it has a lot to do with Me Too and the emergence of the fourth wave. Thank you for listening to After Images. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow After Images podcast on social media.